Welcome to Beyond the Call, brought to you by Start Church. We hope you enjoyed the upcoming podcast and hope this time is empowering, inspiring, and helpful as you pursue the dream God has put in your heart. The participants of this podcast are not attorneys, and this recording is not to be considered legal advice. Please contact your local attorney's office where needed. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today for the Start Church Beyond the Call podcast. I'm very excited today. I've got Greg Baylor here, who's an attorney with ADF, who's one of our partners, and I'm really excited about digging into this subject today. And Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. So for those that don't know uh, ADF or uh, yourself, give us a little bit of your background and who ADF is. Yeah, um, so I've been with Alliance Defending Freedom uh, for about 11 and a half years now. And prior to that, I was with a different religious liberty organization doing similar kind of work. And uh, my focus these days is on two things. Um, I do a lot of congressional advocacy. So a lot of my work right now is opposing the Equality Act, but uh, I also uh, spend a lot of time working with Christ-centered institutions of education, all the way from pre-K all the way up through seminary. So um, it's a challenging area of the law, but it's a delightful set of clients that we get to work with, and we feel like participating in God's advancement of the kingdom. So it's very satisfying work. Oh, that's great. Uh, we love to hear that. Now, you, you mentioned uh, the Equality Act. For our listeners who don't Everybody's hearing kind of buzzes about this, but what is the Equality Act? What do we need to know at a high level? Yeah, well, I, I would start with the idea that there are laws right now at the federal level that forbid discrimination in various contexts. What the Equality Act does is to add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. That's the main thing that the Equality Act does. So these pre-existing federal laws that I mentioned a minute ago, what are they? In what context do they govern? So you got the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is sort of the big one, right? That's the big civil rights law in our country. And it's got a bunch of pieces to it, a bunch of titles to it. And the first one, Title II, is about places of public accommodation. Right. You know, when Congress adopted this law, they were responding to a particular circumstance, the difficulty that African-Americans had traveling interstate in the 50s and in the 60s. A lot of times uh, African-Americans would go to a restaurant and they were told there's no table for them or they'd go to a hotel and they're told that they weren't gonna be allowed to stay there. And Congress said quite rightly that this is wrong and the federal government needs to intervene and forbid this. So it did. And one of the things it did is it defined what is a place of public accommodation relatively narrowly to kind of fit that historical context. Right. One of the things the Equality do Act does, in addition to adding sexual orientation, gender identities, protected classes, is that it dramatically expands the scope of what counts as a place of public accommodation. It's like any establishment that provides a good a service or a program, which is a pretty enormous and broad category. So the Equality Act works on that piece. There's a piece about housing, housing discrimination. There's obviously a piece of the Civil Rights Act of 64 that's about employment, discrimination, employment, it adds sexual orientation, gender identity there. And then finally, the other big one, there's a there's a law, it's called Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 64. It forbids discrimination by recipients of federal financial assistance. And when you think about that, that's a lot of entities, but the most significant one for our purposes is public schools and a lot of private schools, especially at the higher ed level. So the Equality Act does all those things. And the final thing it does 
is that it takes away the religious liberty defenses that, that these institutions, religious institutions and individuals would otherwise have to defend themselves against charges of so-called discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So very comprehensive law, and I'm sure we'll wanna talk more about the particular consequences of these changes that the Equality Act would purportedly make. Yeah, that's really my next question. I appreciate your explanation on that. I think the next question, many of our listeners are pastors and ministry leaders, and they're asking, what's the implications? You know, they're, they're sensing, they just heard you explain that, and they're asking, how is this gonna end up affecting me, or potentially, how could yeah. this affect me or my church? Yeah, that's, I think that's the more important question, you know, and instead of the technicalities of what the law does, what, are the, what does this mean in real life? You know, what, there are some uncertainties I got to observe at the outset about how the Equality Act, if it passes, how it will be interpreted. And one of those uh, uncertainties is whether churches will be deemed to be places of public accommodation under this new broad definition of place of public accommodation. Uh, we hope that it won't be. ADF would certainly argue in court that it, that it isn't, that churches aren't places of public accommodation, but it's you know, not unreasonable to believe that some judges and others are going to say, yeah, you know, you, you guys, you offer a service, you offer a program, you allow people to come to your facility. Um, there's the possibility of kind of a mixed answer. Uh, I'm skeptical that the Equality Act will tell churches you have to admit people to membership even if they violate the church's teachings on the distinction between the sexes or, or uh, sexual morality or marriage. But you can imagine scenarios where it's much more likely that the Equality Act would be interpreted to reach the activities of a church. You know, let's say you have a community event and people are coming to that. One of the things that supporters of these laws think is that these laws mean that someone subject to them must allow a person to use private facilities consistent with their gender identity, their own self-understanding rather than their biological sex. So the reason I brought up this scenario of a public event, you know, inviting the community to it or whatever, if you maintain a policy says that you got to use private spaces like restrooms or whatever based on, on biology rather than subjective gender identity, that could be a violation of the Equality Act. So that's one potential consequence. Another one would be in the area of employment. Um, again, there's some ambiguity in here. This, this story is actually a little bit more complicated because the Supreme Court actually decided a case, you may have heard about this back in June, saying that Title VII, which is one of the laws that the Equality Act would amend, that its existing, pre-existing ban all the way from 64, pre-existing ban on discrimination on the basis of sex actually already includes a ban on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So in some senses, when the court said that, it already accomplished one of the objectives of the Equality Act, which was to, which was to insert sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. So what does it mean to have a sec one of these non-discrimination rules in the employment setting? Well, the easy case is one where, you know, someone says you can't work here because you're gay, you can't work here because you're trans. That's obviously going to be deemed to be discrimination on these bases in the employment setting. But there are other sort of more 
aggressive things that supporters of this law understand the, the, the ban on gender identity discrimination to mean. Uh, it means you have to use a person's preferred pronouns. It means you have to allow them into private space, sex-separated private spaces, based not on their biology, but on their uh, subjective self-understanding. How about health plans? Um, a lot of the folks who support these laws say, hey, if you're subject to a gender identity non-discrimination ban, you have to include uh, in your plan puberty blockers that are injected into 10-year-olds who are confused about their gender, or cross-sex hormones, or even surgery that's mutilating and sterilizing. Now, all of, all of that could apply to churches and re other religious employers. There's an ambiguity here. There's an open question here. Title VII has always had a religious exemption in it. That's why, why a mosque can say, we're not gonna hire Christians to be you know, our spiritual leaders. Um, that makes total sense. So there's this exemption in there. And what I would argue is that that exemption protects churches and other religious employers from claims of sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. So all of these terrible things that I described may not be applicable to churches and religious employers, but it might be. Folks on the other side of this issue say, look, that exemption does not help you when you're sued with, you're sued uh, by someone who's claiming gender identity or sexual orientation discrimination. You're, it only protects you when you're sued by someone claiming religious discrimination. You know, like ADF hires only Christians, and if someone who's an atheist comes and applies, we wouldn't hire them. Um, the supporters of the equality would say, yeah, the existing exemption protects you from that, but it does not protect you from a claim of sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. So we're gonna to have to find out uh, how, how that plays out. So the main two you know, areas, again, just to sum up, places of public accommodation and employment. You know, Some churches do get federal financial assistance. If they do, they're gonna be subject to a ban on gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, some religious organizations also provide housing like homeless shelters. That too could be subject to the Equality Act if it becomes law. So lots of concrete manifestations of it, but also some uncertainties. What are the next steps? What are you waiting on? What are we waiting on to hear how this is gonna play out? Give us an understanding of kind of how these things go through the courts and what are we looking for? Yeah, so you know, to pass uh, uh, as a law, obviously, you need to get the House, the Senate, and the President on the same page about this. And you know, President Biden said that if the Equality Act hits his desk and he wants to hit his desk in the first 100 days of his term, that he will sign it. House of Representatives, a couple of weeks ago, week before last, passed the Equality Act on a mostly party line vote. A couple of Republicans voted for it, but it was mostly Democrats. So we know Biden's gonna sign it. The House has already passed it. That means the Senate is the key. So as every, I'm sure your listeners know that the Senate is kind of equally divided, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. And in the case of a tie, the vice president, Kamala Harris, who was a supporter of the Equality Act would break the tie. Mm -hmm. So what's gonna happen in the Senate? Are we gonna get the Equality Act or not? Well, I don't know. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that we won't unless circumstances change. Now, why do I say that? Uh, your listeners may have also heard this debate going on about the legislative filibuster, this, this, this procedure in, in the Senate under which a lot of legislation needs 60 votes, not 50 plus one, but 60 votes to pass. If the fi 
And, and the reason it's in the news is because the new Democratic majority in the Senate, you know, they took over the Senate in the last election. They're talking about eliminating the filibuster, making it much easier to accomplish their agenda, including the Equality Act. So if the filibuster remains in place, I don't think the Equality Act becomes law because I'm pretty sure there aren't 60 votes for it. Um, there are only 49 co-sponsors right now. Uh, so Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is a Democrat, uh, chose not to sponsor it. Susan Collins, a Republican of Maine, did sponsor it in the last Congress, but chose not to sponsor it in this, in this Congress. So in a sense, they, don't, they may not even have 50 votes to pass this, much less 60. But does this mean we should be complacent? Absolutely not. Our senators need to hear from us on this because there are other pathways, at least potentially available, to supporters of the Equality Act to get it through in this Congress. So our elected representatives need to know that we're, we're opposed to it. So we're working diligently to you know, make our voices heard in, in the Senate with those who might be you know, potentially supportive of the Equality Act, and, and we hope that others will do so as well. Let me ask you this question. You've got your finger on the pulse. Thank you for that explanation. Um, you've got your finger on the pulse uh, about this. Do you see other legislation like this? I know this is a snapshot you know, of this one particular act, but zoom out for us a little bit. Do you see other legislations like this or other potentials like this? Yeah. Well, it's no secret that a lot of folks on Capitol Hill uh, are not sympathetic to religious liberty. Um, it's, it's really kind of sad. I started in this world uh, doing this kind of work in 1994, which was the year after a, a very bipartisan Congress almost unanimously adopted a bill called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is actually the most potent protection that we as American citizens have to protect ourselves when the federal government overreaches and violates, violates our religious liberty. But over the years, uh, folks, uh, particularly on the left end of the spectrum, have decided that gay rights and such are much more important than religious liberty. And they now view this statute, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which doesn't guarantee anybody anything other than a day in court to claim their religious liberty. They've decided that this Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is just can't, we can't abide, they can't abide it anymore, that it could interfere with the advancement of so-called LGBTQ rights. So they're seeking to uh, not entirely repeal it, but to sort of take all the power out of it. There's a bill that was, I think one of the prime sponsors was Vice, now Vice President Harris called the Do No Harm Act, which is a nice name, but it actually does a lot of harm uh, in that it would, it would take away uh, the ability of religious individuals and organizations to defend themselves with this religious freedom statute in almost every set of circumstances. So we're seeing bills like that. I think the other thing that we could see if the Equality Act as a whole doesn't pass, you, I remember I said at the beginning, it, it addresses different pieces or different uh, pieces of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You could very well see just like bills that pertain to just a single piece rather than the waterfront, the way that the Equality Act does. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of things that aren't about religious liberty per se, but that violate people's consciences. And I think consciences, and that's going to happen both at the legislative level by Congress and at the regulatory level by the administration. So I guess the million dollar question here is what can churches and ministries do 
now in light of this, not just one act or several things coming down the yeah. pipe. There's a shift happening in America. What can churches and ministries do to protect themselves? Yeah, you know, there's really a couple things. The first one is, you know, to participate in the political process. I mean, obviously you want to be careful and not violate any restrictions on 501c3s. I mean, you can't endorse a candidate, but at the same time, you are free to speak about issues. And you are also free to contact your representatives and ask them not to do things that are undermining your religious liberty. So it's perfectly fine for a church to contact its senator and say, please don't vote for the Equality Act. It's gonna be, be bad for our country, it's gonna be bad for our church, it's gonna be bad for the common good. So getting, getting involved in the political process in a way that's consistent with your 501c3 tax exempt status, that's perfectly fine. The other thing to do too is preparing for the day when the Equality Act, I mean really preparing for today, mm -hmm. even though the Equality Act doesn't exist, and it may never exist, there are still threats to religious liberty, similar threats to religious liberty that are coming from state laws, that are coming from local laws, that uh, make it really important to be prepared now to how to best defend ourselves. And the way I try to describe how you best defend yourselves is you need to anticipate the kind of questions that will get asked if you're in a dispute over sort of your freedom versus kind of the LGBTQ uh, uh, rights uh, assertions. And one of the questions is, well, why is this, why, why would this violate your religion? What's wrong with, you know, for example, having a pastor who is in a same-sex marriage or wants to present him or herself as the opposite sex or something like that. You want to, you want to articulate your, the, your, both your policies and your practices and the theological rationale for that. That's something I encourage you to do. And then, of course, there's the issue of consistent application. It's one thing is to have policies if they're on a shelf gathering dust. It doesn't really do you much good. You need to have those policies at your fingertips, at the front of your brain, and apply them in a consistent matter, manner so that, you know, you're not going to uh, generate undue risk of, lit of litigation by seeming to behave in an inequitable fashion in different cases. Um, ADF has a has something called the Ministry Alliance, which churches can join. We have hundreds and thousands of churches that are already members, and that's a great way for folks to get this kind of this kind of advice in, in a more concrete fashion. And, and you can check that out at adfministryalliance.org, adfministryalliance.org. Great, we appreciate you being with us today, making you know taking away some of the fog for us on this issue. Uh, we always recommend ADF to go there, churches and ministries, joining your program, getting to know the council, getting to know other uh, people there. We really appreciate you spending some time. Hopefully we'll get an update from you in a couple of weeks here and we'll do part two of this. Sounds like a good plan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Call, brought to you by Start Church. If you have any questions about what you've heard today, please give us a call at 844-641 5718 or visit our website at startchurch.com. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Start Church Beyond the Call. Start Church has helped thousands of churches and ministries protect what God has given them to lead. Check out our website at startchurch.com or feel free to call at 844-641-5718. We would be honored to serve you.